It's time for class. Civics just doesn't begin and end on election day. This is Sunday Civics, the home for the civically engaged with political strategist L. Joy Williams on Sirius XM's Urban View. Welcome to Sunday Civics, the home for the civically engaged. I'm L. Joy Williams. I'm your civics teacher, your neighborhood political strategist, and I, I'm happy that you made it to class this morning. You, you probably need it because for the last couple of days since the election on Tuesday, you may have been listening to radio, watching the cable news networks, reading the papers, trying to figure out what happened. Some folks are happy about what happened. Maybe your person won, your congressional person, your state ledge person, maybe the governor that you've been supporting won. And for a number of people, they are mourning the loss that the person that they invested in, that they volunteered for, has lost and all seems lost. But if you've been listening to the show for some time, you can go back to this episode where I had this conversation about what happens after you lose and what you need to focus on going forward. Now, if you're the candidate, you know, you need some time to decompress, to think about your campaign, the resources that you had. But if you're really committed to your community, and I know for a number of people that you are, you know that this is just maybe a setback in the long struggle for representation for your community, but also the resources and the needs of your community and the people and the constituents that you sought to serve. For those of you who volunteered, I know that it can be hurtful. There are some candidates across the country that I supported with my time, talent, and treasure. There are some who were clients of mine that I really, really believed would that have a vision for their district, for their constituents that can lead better than the person that won. But I also know that for some, the landscape has a lot to do with it you know, in terms of the districts that they are running in, because we just came from a redistricting cycle, made it difficult. The ability to have unlimited time and unlimited resources could have helped, or you had all of the money that was necessary and it still didn't do what you thought it would. All of those feelings are valid, but I don't want you to wallow in them for too long. Because for those of us who know, who continue to fight and organize in our communities, you're going to have some setbacks. Sometimes you're going to lose a contest here or there, but you have to, after sitting with yourself for a minute, after wallowing in the loss, you got to pick yourself up and think about those people, think about your communities, and think about what's next. And what's next even if the person that you invested in isn't going to be the person that is representing you in Congress or in the state legislature or even in the governor's mansion, that person still represents you now. And so what's your agenda? (laughs) What are you asking for? Because it doesn't matter if you voted for them or not, they still now represent you. And so go to their place with an ask. Hold them accountable. 
right? And I'm not talking about the accountability that comes because they come from your community or the accountability of love, the accountability of the time and talent that you invested them as candidates, because obviously you didn't. You're going there as an accountability measure of their role, right? They're now your governor. They're now going to be representing you in Congress. Go with an agenda. Now, my agenda, part of my agenda going into the new year or just even thinking about it now is economic prosperity for a large percentage of people, a large percentage of Black people who are often left out on the table, right? Anytime we're talking about a Black agenda, people are talking about contracts with the federal government, with the state, with the city, you know, building things, opening a business, getting your LLC, you know, all of these things, which are great. I am not downplaying them as someone who is a business owner. For someone who has previously had contracts with a municipality, I get it. It's a way to expand your economic reach. And even for the programs and resources that need to exist, that need to be expanded for people who are at the poverty line and below, we need to continue to make sure that people aren't left left destitute and that they have a roof over their head, that they have food to eat, that they can get a quality education. All of those things are important. But between those two extremes... Between those two extremes, and I'm not talking about an extreme of destitute poverty and like people making billions. No, I'm talking about the extreme between people who are below the poverty line and people who are like upper middle class. That is that that, there's a large percentage of our folks who are in that gulf, in that valley that we need to build ramps (laughs) for in order for them to get to a point of stability. That's what I'm focusing on. That's what my agenda is focused on in the next year, is how do we build opportunities? How do we build ramps for people to easily walk up, for easily for people to easily roll up to however they can get up, that we provide resources for them to do that. That's on my agenda. So no matter if I voted for the person, if I like the person, it don't matter. I ain't trying to kick it with them in my backyard. I'm coming to them with an agenda to get things done. And on my agenda is economic opportunity. So we're going to talk to Alex Compernell, who is with the Joint Center for Political and Economic Studies, to talk about some of those things, the status of Black work in this country and what we need to do from a a policy perspective that can be included in our agenda that we bring to those folks who now represent us. So don't wallow too long. (laughs) Don't take too long of a break. We got to get up and keep working and keep organizing. We'll be back (laughs) right after a quick break and we'll talk about how we do that economically with the Joint Center for Political and Economic Research. We'll be right back. All the wahala, all the problems, all the things that you think that you must do to start in this world. Like when the teacher, schoolboy and schoolgirl come together. Who is the teacher? I go let you know. Who is the teacher? I go let you know. Welcome back to Sunday Civics. I'm your host and your civics teacher, Eljoy Williams. 
And I want to thank you for, you know, making it to class this morning. I know it's a heavy week given what has happened on election day, which we talked about earlier, but organizing continues, the work continues. And I am happy about the person that we are bringing to the front of the class this morning. Yes, we can spend a lot of time talking about the results of the election and rehashing what should have and what could have. Believe me, I'm sure you are listening to a lot of radio, watching a lot of TV, all up in your feelings about what happened on Tuesday. And there is space for that. But I want to bring you to the next steps. Remember, I talked about having focus on long-term planning. And one of the things that we need to focus on for our communities, when I say our communities, I'm talking about Black folks right now, is on job creation. How do we get more of our people in what you know, that phrase that is often used in politics, good paying jobs. And I wanted to talk to somebody about what good paying jobs are, (laughs) what do they look like, where are they, and particularly for Black communities across this country, what does that look like? So I couldn't think of anybody better to bring to the front of the class for that discussion about the future of work for Black folks in this country than going to America's Black think tank, the Joint Center, for economic, see, I always add extra stuff. Is it's Joint Center for Political and Economic Studies, but I always add extraness to be like the Joint Center for Economics and Workforce Political Stuff. And I, you know, <laughs> coming to the front of the class is Dr. Alex Camardell, who is the head of the Workforce Policy section at the Joint Center. Alex, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you for having me. And it is it is a, a mouthful, so you're not alone. Well, listen, <laughs> and then I I I be adding extra to this, you know, extra words for for you guys to do. But you know, it's political and economic studies, Joint Center for Political and Economic Studies, and Alex heads the workforce. You're the director of the workforce policy division. Is that correct? That's right. So the workforce policy program the Joint Center was kind of birthed out of this idea that we need to think about how we connect skills and education to what's happening in the labor market for Black communities. And we're really just focused on two main things. That's removing barriers to high quality education and training for Black folks, and then making all jobs good jobs for Black folks. Well, I want to get to the discussion of defining what those good jobs are, what do they look like, as well as how do we ensure that more of our people are fitting that category in the work that they do. And I know you have all of the data and information to back it up nationally. But first, because it's your first time being on the show, I want to go to story time and you telling us the story of your first civic action. Yeah. And I I had to really dig deep to remember this, but I can only think about my time in college. So I went to a school in Alabama. I went to the University of Alabama for undergrad, and I was a member of the collegiate chapter of the NAACP. I served in a leadership role. And one of my first civic duties, I think, in life, you know, kind of sad that it took so long, but one of those first civic duties was organizing a voter registration drive along with my peers like core focus of getting black voters registered, not just on campus, 
but throughout the city of Tuscaloosa, Alabama, which is home just not just to the University of Alabama and Stillman College and HBCU, but also to a pretty sizable, large black population that would be considered a part of the black belt in the South. So I just very vividly remember taking physical, you know, pieces of paper, standing up kiosks or tables and standing outside of restaurants and shops to register folks and then hand delivering those registrations to the post office or to the local courthouse to get black folks registered. I think that was to me just my, one of my, you know, most vivid memories of my first civic action. And thankfully it didn't stop there. You know, I've spent the last more than a decade in, in what I consider to be public service, working in the realm of external affairs, nonprofit, public policy and advocacy and more. So, so yeah, so that's voter registration. I love that because I feel like everybody should, I mean, if you're organizing or in your community, you should at least do a voter registration drive at least once. Like it should be one of the things that is on your civic checklist is like, have I done a voter? Have I registered people to vote yet? (laughs) Right. So that should be, you know, part of the thing. I think I'm going to put that on my, my list for the new year of like, you know, 10 civic actions you can take. And it's just like, organize. Voter registration dive. And it doesn't have to be, you know, 5,000 or 50,000 people, right? Just starting off with a small number, you know, that's manageable. But just to go through the process, I think, is important for people to understand how that works. So I want to get... I was just going to say, just the the talking to people in the process, like you're actually engaging with your neighbors and like the local community on the issues that are most important to them as you're getting them involved in the civic participation process is really powerful. Oh, you mean the novel idea that actually talking to people. That's right. <laughs> yeah. That's oh, right. I haven't thought about that before, that actually talking to people <laughs> about what matters to them instead of just like, you know, trying to beat them over the head with whatever messaging you have, mm-hmm. it will force them to do things. Yeah. That's a novel idea. We ought to explore that more. (laughs) I want to get to why I brought you here because I have all sorts of questions. And I think we need a level set in terms of our economic future. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, we saw a little bit in this midterm election cycle as people were discussing the economy and jobs and wages and, you know, corporate behavior, you know, I don't get the sense that we often talk about the status of work in a cohesive way. And certainly for Black workers across the country, and I know you have a particular focus on the South, and just looking at our migration patterns right now, folks are moving back to the South, right? But for our folks, I want you to sort of level set what the status of work is for Black workers in this country in general. Yeah. Well, I think it is certainly better today than it was over a century ago, right? But we still have pretty standard work experience among Black America that is limiting in terms of economic mobility and economic security. The types of jobs that Black folks labor in are often those that don't provide the, the family supporting support that they need to, 
take care of themselves and their loved ones. You know, I think that in our view, the picture of the labor market as it relates to Black workers is relatively bleak. And even though we've pulled out of, or what some would argue, uh, we've pulled out of an economic recession following the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, you find in Black communities that they're still facing a recession, right? So as the rest of the nation progresses or moves on, Black communities are left behind. And this is actually a repeat process after almost every economic downturn, Black communities are still left behind in the economic recovery. And our policies are largely responsible for that. It's not individual lack of effort. It's not that Black people are lazy or aren't taking advantage of the opportunities presented to them. It's that our investments regarding, you know, public budgetary investments and our job training and education infrastructure and our job creation policies just don't prioritize or serve Black communities as much. I will share, not to be super data heavy, but I will share, you know, earlier this year leading into the president's State of the Union address, the Joint Center actually produced a poll of Black Americans just to kind of gauge or test what their priorities are. But we also asked about how they felt about their economic situation. And, you know, despite this economic recovery that was being touted by the president and by many elected officials, it turns out that nearly 70 percent of Black Americans feel that their economic situation has either gotten worse or stayed the same. So I think that's something, you know, worth noting when we think about work and what it provides. That's a pretty good indicator that the work that we currently make available to Black folks is not providing that security that it's supposed to. Yeah. You know, let's let's do some definitions really quickly because we often hear in political discourse, good paying jobs. Mm -hmm. What does that mean in your assessment? And particularly, what does that mean for Black workers? What has that meant for Black workers historically? Yeah, well, I, I mean, the definitions vary greatly. Some would argue, you know, 12 years ago, we argued that 725 is good paying and it's still our minimum wage to this day. I mean, over the last decade, it's changed to $15 an hour, which is what folks are focused on making the new minimum wage. We know that a, a standard living wage across the country is generally between $22 and $25 an hour. That accounts for the exorbitant or high cost of housing and childcare and all of these other extreme costs that are increasing on a daily basis. Black folks in particular, like, we are behind everyone in terms of wealth and assets. You know, an uh, organization called Prosperity Now a few years ago estimated that it would take over 200 years for the wealth of Black communities to catch up to the wealth of white folks. In fact, we're still starting at a place of zero whenever it comes to wealth in this nation, which means that our earnings need to reflect that. And currently, the earnings don't provide enough to help Black communities build up a savings or a nest egg to help them catch up through vehicles like home ownership, through business ownership, et cetera. So a good paying job, in my view, is one that does help us move towards closing the racial wealth divide, which is only expanded as income inequality has expanded. And I think 
low paying jobs, jobs that don't pay enough for black families to put away money for their savings or for their future are perpetuating the racial wealth divide. Those are not good paying jobs. So that's kind of how I see it. I certainly don't think $15 an hour is enough, especially given the high costs that black families face. There is a higher penalty in terms of the costs that for, for black families regarding you know, childcare, I mean, housing costs, especially with black folks living in primarily urban centers, it is, it is too much and jobs aren't paying enough to keep up with, with those costs. So that's how I think about, you know, what a good paying job is. And, you know, and kind of on a more, on on another level, whenever I think about a good paying job, it's one that offers black families choice, right? I don't mean choices in like, you know, everybody just needs to look out for themselves, or I don't mean in the context of like school choice or anything like that. What I'm talking about is I want a job that pays me enough to choose the best doctor for me whenever I have a health healthcare need, the ability to choose, not have to choose between low quality housing with, you know, rents out the roof or, or good housing that may even lead to home ownership high-quality childcare provider versus another. And because of the low-paying jobs that exist out there, they don't offer a lot of Black workers a lot of choice as consumers because they can't afford the best things for themselves and their families. So I really think a lot about jobs that, in terms of good paying, are those that offer folks economic choice or consumer choice at a larger degree than what they currently have. Yeah. You know, one of, here in New York, one of the things that I've in talking to some of our elected leaders about is this disconnect of the economic policy that we are touting is primarily focused on upper middle class or those who, you know, it's things like, you know, contracts with the city and the federal government, right? Which means that you have to have a business and be in the position in your business to actually contract, you know, with a municipality or something like that. We're also talking about home ownership, which means that you also have to be in an economic situation in order to be able to, you know, afford paying a mortgage in addition to all your bills. It seems that the economic policy or it's sort of focused on people who already have something, whereas there is this big gulf that exists between folks who, as you mentioned, are in jobs that don't allow them to have choice. They don't have benefits, maybe. They don't have the choice in terms of their time to be engaged in other activities, whether that be educational advancement or participation in terms of their family or community. And so it seems that anytime you're talking about Black economic advancement, it's contracts, home ownership, you know, and things like that, or It's talking about programs for people who are below the poverty line or, you know, below. But there is this, I would assume, in looking at the numbers, at least I know here in New York, there is a huge population in the middle, you know, who are that working poor, that struggling to get to middle class, that I don't believe we have an economic agenda to really, that really speaks to where they are to get them to the middle class or to get them to a place that they have a good paying job with greater choice. Yeah. I mean, I think you named it. We have a pretty sizable working poor population. 
the frustration that I run into often with programs or services that deliver, or, you know, some type of cash support or food assistance, et cetera, really require you to be in abject poverty, but haven't caught up with the times to recognize that even making above the poverty level, you are still not able to make ends meet because your employer, if you're working, does not provide enough income to help you make up for the lack of what the social supports can provide. So you definitely see that, see it in that case. I mean, it's like a classic case of whenever school parents or, you know, when I was being raised, just my personal story, my mom works in healthcare. And I remember every year we would have to apply for free or reduced price lunch. And my mom made, you know, just over the amount where I did not qualify for free or reduced price lunch, but it was still like a bit of a dent in our budget and our weekly budget to have to pay for that. And, you know, that's the case for so many families in different services across the country. And we have not necessarily addressed that wide swath of folks that you described that sit in kind of that working poor population. And most of our policies don't recognize the true dynamic nature of the labor market or the economy, right? To your point, it is mostly about like, we have this measure of poverty that we can put people under and just let that be, you know, a, a, an area or a demographic where we can target programs and services and policy interventions. And then we have the middle and the upper class that, you know, either does not need those, those interventions or, you know, is closer to benefiting from the existing policies that we already have in place. So we don't need to really worry about kind of that, not, you know, kind of in-between group that, that you described. And that's a, you know, frustration that, that we run into often. Uh, what are some of the, because, you know, just, just another anecdote about that. And I think I've talked about this on the show before, you know, thinking about parents who are often caught up in systems like CPS or ACS, right, where their children are taken away or in the system. And for a large percentage of those parents, right, it's issues of poverty, right, that they're being called because, you know, they don't have a stable place to stay or someone to watch their children, you know, that is reliable and something happens, unfortunately or being able to feed them their children on a, a regular basis or what has been perceived as like the nutritious meal or, or, or things of that nature. And I know of cases, right, where it's like they're trying to work, they're working, but if I don't have childcare and I make too much to qualify, mm -hmm. right, <laughs> you know, I'm just thinking about even as a foster parent, all of the resources that the system gives me as a foster parent to care for that child for that short term, like, why don't you just give it to the, <laughs> like the parent, right, in order to be able to help them. Now, obviously, that's, you know, taken out in the children where there is extreme case, where there are cases of neglect and other things. Yeah. Like, the, what you've named is, like, here's the, here's the problem. The problem is this family does ha not have the resources or can barely make childcare happen. So let's provide them childcare. Let's provide resources to that. And then they can, you know, continue economically and maybe get to a point where they can, where they no longer need that support, right? So th that kind of nimbleness in the system, which would overall save us money, yeah. <laughs> which would actually contribute to our tax base, like, 
I don't understand, Alex. Like, how, like how well, does no one look at that and say, like, no, oh, this is better for us in the long term? It's so, I mean, the confusing nature of the policy, I think, is intentional, right? Like, it's supposed to trip people up. It's supposed to make people question, why do we even need these services in place for some folks? And why do we need them for others? I mean, it all, I think, comes down to a question of, like, who's deserving and who's not. That's one thing, and we, we can talk about that. When you were describing the complexity of the system and the rationale behind it, I instantly thought about, and excuse me for referencing like pop culture stuff, but I instantly thought about this movie on Netflix called The Maid, which is about a young woman who is a caregiver. She's a parent, but she's also working for a wealthy family as a maid, and she's looking for childcare. So she goes to her local social services office and she talks to the caseworker there and asks, can I get some childcare assistance? And the caseworker says, well, you have to get a job in order to qualify for childcare assistance. And then the maid or the, the person seeking help asks, wait, well, I can't get a job because I need childcare. Wait, so I need childcare to get the job, but I need a job to get childcare. <laughs> like it's because you can't work. I mean, caregiving is one of the most, I think, significant challenges, challenges to overcome when seeking employment in this country. And I think we've seen that really play out over the last couple of years and has put a dent in the labor force participation of women, in particular Black women, who have not been able to find affordable, high-quality childcare in this country. And then their finances suffer, the overall, overall child welfare and, or well, health and well-being of their kids and educational outcomes suffer. I do think, you know, childcare infrastructure in itself is a workforce labor market issue that we haven't actually like embraced as such. And part of it is because it is what some people would deem a woman's issue, right? We've not thought really meaningfully about what it means to provide unmitigated access to caregiving support and resources to those that do caregiving in this country. And, and as you know, Black women are you know, the predominant caregivers in, in terms of the labor force haven't to open generational, right? Multi-generational. Yes. So for caring for your children, caring for, you know, parents. Yes. Um, I can't tell. I mean, in our group chats alone, I'm sure there are women, <laughs> black women listening to this show right now who yes. can talk about, you know, being in that group chat with friends and sharing the struggle of caring for my intergenerational household, right? Mm -hmm. Whether it's, you know, a, a spouse, a grandparent, a parent, or even a sibling, while you're also taking care of your children and trying to work in general, that is something that is an a, a, a increased burden that Black women and women of color in general share than any other racial group in the country, right? And so taking Taking that on, <laughs> you know, understanding that and the economic impact that that has is definitely important. I want to talk about unions for a minute because, you know, we hear the, particularly in the political discourse, we put certain value on certain unions, right? <laughs> you know, some unions are demonized, others, depending on the profession, are, you know, heralded as the great sacrificers. You know, and certainly Black folks, I feel like are in terms of Black workers are more likely to be in unions. And that has had significant benefits for communities across the country that provide stability, 
It provides benefits and supports. And I've seen also this trend of more and more workers attempting to expand union households by bringing in more workers into unionized work. So I would love to hear your assessment about that and where we are, um, Mm -hmm. obviously, with, you know, Amazon workers, Walmart workers in terms of, you know, those kinds of jobs. But where, what other trends are we seeing in terms of expanding union households in general? And what does that mean for Black workers? Yeah, so I think the trends in unionizing, unionization is, it's kind of up in the air, right? We don't get good data on union membership from the last year until early next year. So we, you know, we will see what folks have argued has been a real uptick and unionization to see, we'll see if that really holds true. I've been cautiously optimistic about trends in union membership. I know it's easy to suggest or argue that there has been a sizable increase because of what we've seen in workplaces like with Amazon Union. Starbucks is a huge one right now. Apple is unionizing and many other different shops, even organizations in the nonprofit sector are increasingly becoming unionized. I think my my take on it is that, you know, union membership is a good thing. You already mentioned that it's important for Black workers. Black workers are disproportionately represented in, in unions. There are proven benefits regarding access to actual work, work, workplace benefits, increased salaries, and more. I mean, the whole element of collective bargaining in the workplace is essential to our democratic or democracy, right? Promotes democracy in many different ways. Unions aren't the only form of organizing or workplace organizing either. We have a host of worker centers across the country that provide different types of support outside of the traditional union model. And I believe it's worth exploring those as other sites of important workplace advocacy and organizing too. You know, I'm situated in the South, even though I work out of BC and I have a national scope, the union outlook in the South of of the United States where most Black people work, it's not that good. In Georgia, 3% of workers are unionized. It's, we've had an increase, I think, in recent years of union wins, but it is certainly not the status quo in our labor market. And a lot of that has to just do with racist policymaking. I mean, Georgia was pivotal to the backlash of collective bargaining through right-to-work laws and, and at-will employment throughout the middle of the 20th century. And very, like, not not... I'm not exaggerating when talking about the very racist intent. The idea was to stop Black workers from actually organizing in the workplace alongside poor white working folk, right? Like, didn't want them to build alliances and coalitions that would help topple the corporate structure that, you know, that was exploiting them in the workplace. So, you know, the South is kind of the the next venture for unionizing. Like, I want to see a lot more attention put on the Southeast, given the disproportionate representation of Black workers here, some intentional investment in building worker power in this place. And again, it's not going to always be a union. It could be a worker center or some other structure. But we have very, like, like the anti-right to work in itself as kind of the main thing preventing the expansion of unionization. It's a white supremacist, you know, ideal. Like it is, it is, racist. (laughs) And we've tried to see states or we've seen states try to expand right to work laws. Some of them have failed. Some have won. 
but it is problematic. And that's something that is a huge barrier for black workers in the South. But I, I want you to I- expand on this a little bit and, and talk about, because I believe in sort of, I believe in naming a thing and who's responsible and how it specifically disenfranchises people. So talk a bit about the right to work structure, how that impacts communities economically and the efforts to change that. Yeah. So, you know, I should, I should mention, you know, right to work is it's a tool to help or tool to prevent the ability of unions to build the membership that they need to engage in collective bargaining. It's the primary democratic tool or bargaining is the primary democratic tool, like in the workplace that workers could use to secure better protections in in wages in the workplace. We know just from the data, from the research that's been done by think tanks and even academics that workers who live in right to work states are made worse off in terms of their earnings. I mean, it is, again, it's a, it's a tool to destroy unions, <laughs> to destroy collective bargaining. Those workers in those states are less likely to have access to health insurance, which results in higher out-of-pocket costs, lower wages have been demonstrated in right-to-work states. So in that in itself, and in right-to-work, you know, I guess I should, should define as someone who is not a, a labor attorney, a law attorney. So, you know, this definition can vary, but essentially, prov- I'm going to struggle with this definition because I'm trying to not use the jargon. <laughs> no problem. Go on. Go, make it plain. Yeah. So basically, in a right-to-work state, you're not required to join a union. That's it. If, if, if you yeah, have the option to. So... When I think about the racist nature of it, I think back to the campaigns of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Before his death, you know, he was a very avid labor justice advocate, economic justice advocate. And one of the quotes that I always think back to, I have pulled up here real quickly, is uh, in our glorious fight for civil rights, we must guard against being fooled by false slogans such as right to work. It is a law to rob us of our civil rights and job rights. Its purpose is to destroy labor unions and the freedom of collective bargaining by which unions have improved wages and working conditions of everyone. Wherever these laws have been passed, wages are lower, job opportunities are fewer, and there are no civil rights. So Dr. King said that in 1961, yet these laws still exist. And it's the main motivation behind suppressing worker power in the South. And you see it also manifest in the form of union busting. You know, this is something that employers engage in repeatedly. A Starbucks, you know, will try to union bus. We've seen Amazon union bus try to stop union drives from actually developing their membership by intimidating workers whenever they come into the workplace and try to unionize. So, so yeah, so those are some examples and some of the, you know, some of what, you know, causes a lot of heartburn in the labor movement right now. Yeah. I think we need to call it what it is, though. I mean, suppressing worker power in itself is a maintenance of white supremacy. I mean, that is truly what it what it's about. Stay tuned. We'll be right back with more on Sunday Civics. How can it be?
Welcome back to Sunday Civics. So because you've mentioned the South a number of times and we, you know, during this discussion, I, I want to talk about it a little bit more. You know, we, from the Biden administration and even the previous administration, there is a lot of dollars flowing down to states for infrastructure, <laughs> right? And particularly in the rural South, whether it's on broadband, whether it's up and down the country, really, in terms of roads and bridges, you know, I feel like there could be a whole podcast of just of people in their communities talking about they tow up roads and <laughs> like bridges. Right. Somebody should do that. NPR, get on that. That's <laughs> a good project to do. How how do we ensure that Black folks are included in that infrastructure development? Because that is also not an economic, just an economic engine for the local communities, but right. also for the workers. Like, how can we prioritize to ensure that Black communities are a part of that? Okay, so I am hoping not to, like, hope this isn't stirring up any kind of anger from folks, but I feel this strongly coming off of election night. The amount of resources and money that we put into getting folk elected into these offices has to go into organizing to ensure that public policies prioritize the communities that need resources the most. I'm talking about, you know, outside of the election, where do folks go whenever it's time to organize to ensure that public dollars flow to our communities to be defensive and to stop public policies that restricts access to economic resources or reproductive care, et cetera, in the, in the state legislatures. The reason why I say all of this is because it's now up to the states to distribute all this money, right? Like states and local areas are going to come together. They're going to, they're going to bring together the, the regular folks that always come to the table, your chambers, your, you know, your council folk, your special interest groups, your trade associations, et cetera. Those folks are going to make massive decisions about billions of dollars, and we need strong organizing to get people in those rooms or to stand outside those rooms and bang on the door and tell them that we need to direct these funds to my community that has broken roads, where we don't have bridges, where we don't have internet access, et cetera. And the analysis that needs to be in those rooms has to reflect the Black experience, right? Like, for example, over 38% of Black households in this country do not have internet access. Like, that's un unimaginable. But that needs to be introduced into the conversation or decision-making process about the distribution of broadband dollars through the D Digital Equity Act and the Infrastructure Fund, or else it's not going to disproportionately serve Black communities. So... So, yeah, so that's kind of where I stand with it. I think where we go from here is we focus our organizing attention on getting the governors and mayors to invite or to allow folks, particularly yeah. color, who are working folk, to help be participants in the decision-making process. Um, but unfortunately, like, like I said, outside of the elections, you don't see a lot of resources going to that type of organizing, that type of movement building in the policy process. So that's that's real heavy on my on my heart and mind because I know that we have this what the administration likes to call a once in a lifetime or once in a generation um, investment through infrastructure, 
it's going to be a flash in the pan if we don't get the people that need it the most at the table helping to guide those decisions. Well, not only that, it'll continue to, you know, bolster economically the folks who are already wealthy, corporations who are already going to, you know, already decided how much of that pot they get in, (laughs) you know, and have the resources and also the people to be in the offices of those elected officials on a Mm -hmm. regular basis to make sure they get their cut. And that's why I argue all the time, like, you know, cut it up for yourself, right? If if for your community is like, okay, well, you know, here is what we're going to do collectively in organizing in our community to make sure we get this road and not only get it paved, get it expanded, but also make sure people are working on it, you know, and this can be a leg up in terms of getting into a job or an industry that can take me further. Yeah. and uh, Go ahead. I was just going to share the advantage we have is that the law, it either requires or strongly encourages that type of participation. It it strongly encourages local governments and state governments to enforce local hiring policies, to prioritize, you know, for a construction project, low-income communities within a certain radius, radius. It tries to get at, through a very race-neutral manner, it tries to get at increasing the number of Black folks in traditional and non-traditional occupations in the construction trades. In the Department of Transportation, there are some requirements or strong, again, strong suggestions that the dollars flow to work opportunities that are enforced through project labor agreements. So getting unions involved in that because we have one of the most union-friendly administrations in this country. The pro or in our history, the problem that we will face, and this is where the accountability and the organizing is so important, is that you have state governments and state legislatures that are extremely resistant to prioritizing racial equity and racial justice in the distribution of public money, right? Like they don't even want to talk about racism in the state of Georgia. You can lose your job in in higher ed if you talk about critical race theory, even if you're not talking about critical race theory. So I think that's the trouble that Black folks have felt have been dealing with for a long time, especially in the South where, you know, I live in Atlanta, but my state legislature is overwhelmingly conservative and very rural. They're making decisions about my life and what my community has access to. And I'm not able to be at that table without strong organizing support, but we have to be very vigilant as these very conservative decision makers are, will resist some of the strong uh, mechanisms in the infrastructure bill that are supposed to prioritize equity and inequality in the distribution of funds. And this is the time. This is the time to get involved. This is the time where state legislatures, yes. where the agencies are delivering you know, to the legislature or to the governors, the agency's priorities, how they plan to spend money before they go into hot and heavy budget season. So this is the time, you know, Mm -hmm. to start those meetings, to look and see how your state government is looking to distribute this money and to wedge your community, (laughs) you know, into that process and that organizing process. A little, you know, civics 101 for Georgia, and I don't, unfortunately don't know this for, for other states, so definitely look into this in, in whatever states you're in. But in Georgia, our legislature has one constitutional man- mandate and one, one 
job to do only, and that is to pass a budget. They can meet for 40 days and 40 nights and do nothing else within the session as long as they pass a budget. And that budget has to reflect the priorities of the people that live in the state. And uh, like you mentioned, this is the time to do it. Sessions are picking up all across the country in January. So just in a few, less than a few months and budgets are going to begin getting written. And even though they may focus mostly on state dollars, you'll still see or meet, have opportunities to raise questions about the distribution of federal dollars through the state budgeting process. So I just really appreciate you for lifting that up. Like I'm in my former role, I was a state policy and uh, budget and fiscal policy. Analyst. So my, one of the biggest gaps in, in civic participation and advocacy, in my view, has been at the state level. And it's just such a huge opportunity to improve our overall economic situation, our healthcare environment, et cetera. But it's been, you know, we've been so oppressed and muted out of the process. And now's the time to kind of switch that or flip that on its head. Yeah, definitely getting local, which is my, you know, it's what I preach here on the show all the time. Yes. But, you know, my, my mantra of getting engaged and getting involved because it doesn't matter you know, if you, as you mentioned, have a progressive city council and, you know, mayor or municipality, if your state legislature does not reflect your values right. and if you are not consistently engaged in organizing work that puts your issues before that legislature, it's a both and. You can't just, you know, it's like, oh, I'd like people who look like me or share my values and then I'm out. No, <laughs> like you have to be, you know, consistently in their face, consistently engaging and demanding in order to get things done. Alex, thank you so much for 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 joining us, for being in front of the class. I have to have you back when we have a panel discussion, you know, more about this work because we didn't even get to the, you know, the tech piece. I, you know, yeah. because I know all of these groups are, you know, trying to, you know, saying the you know, the future is tech and the future is legal, whatever, which is already behind because, yeah. you know, th things in tech are moving in a different direction too. So I don't, you know, I don't, are we behind in that? Are we late to the game in terms of the, you know, the tech industry? Should we be looking at something else? Why are yeah, we always well, behind? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we need a lot more time to get into that. <laughs> so I have to have you back for that, but thank you so very much for joining us. Yeah, thank you. I've really enjoyed this and appreciated the opportunity. Thank you. Thank you. And thanks to all of you for making it to class this Sunday. We'll be back next Sunday with more of Sunday Civics, those civics lessons you need to take civic action. Have a great one. It's cool.